Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. It's the first Monday of the month, so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3 and various other frequencies and on the web at www.fmr.co.za. I'm Andrew Marshbanks, and I'm standing in for Gorry. It's not Gorry's normal mellifluous tones here, but in the sunny hour, I will give you Wordsworth Books' brightest and best in fiction and non-fiction, then we'll have Philip Todras, who talks to Marianne Tam about her memoir of sorts, Hitler for Wurt, Mandela and Me, while Beverly Ruiz Muller muses on the niceties of the Nobel Prize for Literature with Bob Dylan as this year's winner. What a shocker. Melvin Minar finds fine literature in Colson Whithead's The Underground Railroad, Who's the Dad?, Vanessa Levenstein wonders as she reads Bridget Jones' Baby, The Diaries by Helen Fielding. Peter Soule suggests Helen Ziller's autobiography, Not Without a Fight, is one of the most fascinating political stories of our time, while Cindy Moritz happily finds humor in Sam Cowan's memoir, From Whiskey to Water. The talk show's addiction to food, drink, and ultimately long-distance swimming. Finally, we chat to Wilbur Smith about his wife, Machinoso, a caviar, and his newest novel, Pharaoh. Well, we start with my review of what's new in the bookshop. Just been looking through the bestseller list, and of course, the number one bestseller should, of course, be Tuli Madonsela's report on state capture, but it's available for download, so no one has been buying it. When I think of the the old days where I remember the Watergate report came out as a huge, thick paperback, and that was a huge bestseller. Similar sort of thing, but these days it's all online, so there you go. Helen Ziller takes the crown with the top book, and that's her marvelous biography, and I'll tell you about that a little bit later, Not Without a Fight. And then second book is Hang Masaneka, My Own Liberator, also a wonderful biography written by the ex-judge. Marvelous stuff. I mean, what a person. Amazing. And then the third one is Rogue. And we talked about Rogue last week. That that book has taken the bookshops by storm. It's fantastic. Jodie Pico is there. She's got a new book, Small Great Things. Wilbur Smith, The Girl on the Train, Harry Potter. And then we get down to another political book, Blood on the Hands by Jessica Pitchford. That's that book uh, set in Natal about the the Hawks, yet again, the Hawks. A.B. de Villiers is there, and Nathaniel is there as well. So a really good bestseller list, and it just shows the country is hungry for political books, which takes me on to Helen Ziller's book, which I read this last weekend. I sort of gulped it down because if you know anything or even a little bit about politics in the Western Cape, you know that Helen Ziller has been really fundamental in changing what happens here. And she goes into details, the various controversies around her, the various tweets that went wrong, etc., and she defends it. And it's done all marvelously, written marvelously, but you have to remember, it's a political biography, and there's lots of politics in it. So if you don't really enjoy politics, I don't think this is the biography for you. Although it does go into her early life, how she was born, and her ancestry, which is quite fascinating. Parents who were Jewish Germans, 
And the whole thing was just brilliantly, brilliantly written. I just actually couldn't put it down. I was away at the Cedarburg the last weekend, and I could not put Helen Zilla down. Not without a fight, the autobiography, and it's 380 rand. And another book I couldn't put down, and been warned about this book, that it was really exceptionally good, and it really is. It's called Behold the Dreamers by Mbolo Mbui. Now, Mbolo Mbui is a Cameroonian who has come to New York and started writing there. And it is about a Cameroonian family who comes to New York and becomes tries to get residents of America. And he gets a job as a chauffeur to a Wall Street banker who works for Lehman Brothers. Well, I hear you say, you understand what's going to happen. This is in about 2006, 2007, and of course the financial crash is just around the corner. Now, it's just absolutely fascinating. You have on the one side the extremely wealthy lifestyle of the Wall Street banker, who is a very nice guy, and the, the Cameroonian and his family, and his struggles to stay in America. And his wife is pregnant, and they're having a child, and they live in a, a sort of a basement flat. It's truly the contrast of these two things. The wife, the banker's wife, is an extraordinary character who's actually addicted to painkillers and drugs and alcohol, etc., I'm not going to tell you anything about it. Let me just tell you this is one marvelous book. It's called Behold the Dreamers, Mbolo Mbui, and it is 305 rand. Then I must just quickly mention Robert Harris has got a new book out, Conclave. Anyone who follows or reads Robert Harris books, you can take poison on this. It's a great book. It's a great read. will keep you totally occupied. It's all about electing the new pope. His books are marvelous. I've read every single one of them, and this is absolutely great. 305 rand. Then I'm just going to mention, coming through to South Africa, I think in the next couple of months, is Joe Wicks. Joe Wicks has taken the diet exercise world by storm in the UK. He is a UK man. And he has got uh, Twitter feeds, he's got Facebook, he's got etc., the whole, the whole works, YouTube, and he has got people slimming down, eating well, exercising, etc. And his concept is you just need 15 minutes a day and you can be as felt and as gorgeous as he is. Well, maybe not. <laughs> but in this book, he now has 50-minute meals, how to complement your diet and exercise regime with his food, and it's very good. He is a master at persuading you that what you're going to do is going to be good for you. And I'm persuaded, let me tell you. I think he's marvelous. That's Joe Wicks, Lean in 15, The Shape Plan, 15-minute meals. And it's coming through soon. It'll be here for Christmas. Well, our next reviewer is uh, Philip Todras. And he's going to be talking to Marianne Tam about her memoir, Hitler, Verwurt, Mandela and Me. Hitler, Verwurt, Mandela and Me, A Memoir of Sorts by Marianne Tam is published by Tafelberg. Marianne, you are telling a story and it's an intriguing story and a well-told story. 
But what initially made you think that you had the story to tell? Everyone has a story, but what was the particular perspective that what drove you to, to write the story? Well, I have a friend who is an author in Europe called Tom Lanois, who I've known for about 30 years. He's, he he's, uh, writes in Flemish, but he's been translated into French and German. And he has always said as a European that he found it really interesting, uh, the historical forces that, that swirled around my father as he grew up, myself, as I grew up when he brought us to South Africa, and then Monday. And, and, and being particularly intrigued with South Africa and where we are now in terms of our constitutional democracy, Tom found it really interesting and thought, and it, it, was a, it took a European to see the, the importance of the fact that uh, you can move in one generation from, uh, from fascism to democracy and that you don't have to hold on. But the currents keep going back and forth and back and forth all the time. We're constantly in the swirl of history. So that was the, I suppose, the underlying impetus. Yes, there is, I think, if you don't mind me saying, there's still a lot of ambiguity and even perhaps anger in yourself in trying to come to terms with some of the things that were imposed upon you or that you had to live with. I actually don't. I feel that this, was my, this is my slaughtering of the beast to my ancestors um, and my revenge on the 20th century. Growing up as a young woman uh, in apartheid South Africa, back then my father didn't think women needed to be educated. The system was very limited in terms of what I could do as a woman, and even more so if you were a black woman. I didn't find the 20th century particularly an enlightening space. I was other already in Pretoria, this immigrant uh, surrounded by quite hostile Afrikaans children, and made my way through it despite of it, with the help of Bob Marley and, and lots of marijuana. So I think holding on to any sort of anger or bitterness is just going to, going to poison you. And you know, life just is. You know, the universe is indifferent. And this was an opportunity to go back and look at that from a different perspective. So I quite enjoyed going back and, and, and saying, you see, I was right. I told you. Well, but I do like your final parting words. In the end, we pass through life as it passes through us. The one lesson I learned from George, your father, it don't wait for happiness to send you a what's up. Go out and be it. Do you think that your father actually did come to terms? You see, I think the only aspect that I think you are perhaps harsh on both yourself and your father is that hindsight, yes, you have 20-20 vision, but it's the context. Yes. And come to terms with what was happening within that space and not how you now perceive it. Um, I think he did because I was with him until the moment he died and by then everything had been resolved. For me, what was important was I could see that part of my father's being ill at ease was having been German and having survived the Holocaust as on the wrong side of history. Now, a lot of Germans post-war were taken on a denazification program, which my father wasn't, because he stayed in, in England. He was a prisoner of war there. But he chose not to go back. He chose not to go back. He, cho he, married, he married my mother, worked in England, came to Pretoria. So that, for me, I think was important for him when you... Because he split. He did, he did something white South Africans do, which is see your past and your homeland in a way that doesn't really place it exactly where it was in the horror of history. And for me, it was very important that he, as an ordinary German, acknowledge what happened around him and, and I wanted to understand how it had come to happen how a nation of people can be taken to that point by someone uh, a leader who brought out the worst in them my mother grew up under Salazar in Portugal uh, who was also a fascist and, and the P-Day there was trained by the Gestapo so both my parents grew up knowing only fascists my mother withdrew she didn't speak she was silent she was worried about me politically if I did speak out in Pretoria if I said what's going on here she said no, don't talk it's not your country be careful they come and fetch you because the P-Day did that and one of her brothers was a communist arrested and she said he was a shadow of his former self when she saw him so it was very those currents 
And I think my father, in the end, acknowledged what happened, because that's the least you can do. Well, the least you can do is tell your story, and I think you've told it very, very well. I've been speaking to Marianne Tam about a very interesting book, Hitler, Verwort, Mandela and Me, and it's more than a memoir of sorts. It's actually a very telling story. Well, U.S. singer Bob Dylan has just been awarded the 2016 Nobel Prize for Literature. Quite controversial. And becoming the first songwriter to win the prestigious award. The 75-year-old rock legend received the prize for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. Here is Beverly Roos Miller's take on that prize. In a year full of surprises, one of the biggest was surely Bob Dylan being awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. Suddenly, there was a blaze of interest in the 2016 prize, usually seen as a bit of a yawn for many. Everybody had an opinion. Some were delighted, not least because it seemed to be a bit of a poke in the eye against the establishment, while others were outraged and said so. I was fascinated, though, again, a little bit sad for Philip Ross, who seems destined to always be the bridesmaid. The committee is unlikely to reward two Americans within a short space of time, and as the prize is never awarded posthumously, it seems he may have missed his chance. Well, the prize has always been controversial. That's kind of inevitable when you have to consider all the great writers in the entire world and then award it to somebody who does not necessarily write in a world language. Two South Africans have won, Nadine Gordimer and J.M. Kutsia, and some came that the all-time best South African candidate might have been the poet and writer M.P. from Bakelow, had he not been writing in Afrikaans during the apartheid era. The Nobel Prize for Literature was designed by the founder, Alfred Nobel, to recognize literature that represents an ideal direction. And ever since then, of course, there have been heated arguments about what that actually means, though there is agreement that the prize should never go to a minor talent, particularly as accusations of the disproportionate number of obscure Scandinavian laureates mounted, 16 in all, most of them never having been heard of today. Since the prize was awarded in 1900, for the, for, for the first time in 1901, 16 women have won out of a total of 113. The prize was not awarded during the two world wars. Writers in English, whatever their country of origin, topped the list with 27. The first being Rudyard Kipling in 1907, the youngest then to win. I grew up adoring his children's books. Then he was accused of being a jingoist. It was only on returning to his work and reading for myself, his sensitive writing, after witnessing what he viewed as a catastrophic Boer War, and on losing his only son in World War II, that I realized what nonsense it is to place his huge talent in such an inadequate box. Politics, of course, do come into play, and there was a bit of a fuss when Winston Churchill won in 1953, but he was one of the most prolific writers who ever lived and was awarded it also for his brilliant oratory defending exalted human values. The prize is not awarded for only one book, but for an entire body of work, and there have been obvious winners like Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Hermann Hesse, Thomas Mann, Germans have won 13 of the prizes, while others have, like Ross and Tolstoy, been overlooked, 
as have Cormac McCarthy, Graham Greene, Prima Levy, Vladimir Mendebokov, and so many other great talents. They don't always get it right, though, on the whole, the list is impressive. So, why Bob Dylan? Well, why not? He stands sturdily in a very old tradition, that of the troubadours, who since ancient times have told and sung truth to power in ways which stir the heart. It's the first time in the awards history that this form of writing has been recognized. And frankly, though, my choice might have been Leonard Cohen. That's purely a personal bias of my own. This year's choice had jaws flapping, and whatever your choice, that's a good thing. After all, to quote one of his most famous lines, the times, they are changing. Melvin Minar, you found the fine literature in Carson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad. You should not read this exquisite novel because it was recommended by Oprah Winfrey to a book club or that President Obama has it on his reading list or that Colson Whitehead's superb first novel, The Intuitionist, displays such vibrant originality that all his subsequent books have a built-in fan club. No, you have to get this book because it is zinging literature in which eloquence of sentence and description of thought and expression compels you to sustain a reading journey of adventure and darkness, confronting you with a lingering historical high moral issue of slavery in this day and age. Perhaps exactly for this day and age, one of xenophobic terror and vicious disregard for basic humanity. The phrase Underground Railroad is an established metaphorical construct for the manner and means in which slaves escape from the South to the abolitionist North before the American Civil War. The expression, coined and fixed in those years, refers to a loose network of anti-slavery activists and their methods to help slaves escape and become free. Not an actual railroad system, but in all the manner and means by foot, wagon and assistance of devoted anti-slavery activists, that was used by black slaves to escape the horror and evil. In the USA, as various recent commentators pointed out, the legacy of subhuman racial discrimination as embedded in the system of slavery has never really been interrogated conclusively. This novel, for all its skilled narrative eloquence and fast-moving plot, and believe you me, you don't want to put it down, makes no bones about that historic evil. But like the best of morality tales, it spikes a vivid contemporary awareness of the slipperiness of humanism. Colson activates the phrase, the Underground Railroad, for his story of the young slave Cora who flees the plantation in Georgia. In a series of high dark adventures, escape is charted from place to place, South and North Carolina, Tennessee and Indiana. Each time, initial secure turns into other forms of malevolence. Vivid and vicious characters move through the land and townscapes where she lands up. Ever lurking is a villainous slave catcher called Richway. His assistant is recognized by a necklace of human ears. Other personalities she encounters are exposed for more subtle evil. The Freedom Trail is the name of a road in a village where tortured bodies of both black slaves and their white helpers are strung from the trees. Town kids frolic at the Friday ritual hangings. In another town, Cora is duped to be a display of living history in a museum of natural wonders. 
It is at this stage that readers realize that Colson has moved his narrative beyond realism. His imagination shifts what could be the facts on the ground just a little left or right. It compels the colorful story in adventurous ways, but also underscores, of course, the message. As a prominent black author, clearly a master of invention and style when it comes to the novel, that message is a brilliant corrective of the American historical narrative. The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, published by Fleet, is one of the best books of the year. Vanessa Levenstein, who is the dad? Bridget Jones's Baby, The Diaries by Helen Fielding could just as easily be subtitled Bridget Jones's Baby, The Franchise. The recently released movie, starring the slightly face-changed Rene Zellweger in the titular role, has clear plot differences. Not to quibble, but surely the book that launched this fabulous empire should have been given the honor of being released before the film? This diary is a prequel to Bridget Jones's Mad About the Boy, where Bridget's beloved Darcy is bumped off to allow her the opportunity to find another romance. Bridget Jones's baby is about the nine months leading up to the birth of her first child. With just a 50% chance of Darcy being the dad, the hilarious romps, vomits and baby scans are vintage fielding. And here's the thing. The book is so funny. Of course it's not realistic. There are cliches, slapstick situations, cardboard characters, but to get fixated in all of that, I feel is missing the point. The dashing but stiff upper lip Mark Darcy and the charming but fickle Daniel Cleaver duel for the title role of dad. Bridget is stuck between two would-be dads, smug mummies, singletons and a toxic new boss. Yet her perspective has shifted because, as any pregnant woman knows, the only person that really matters is the one you still have to meet, your baby. That's where this book is believable. That mother-child bond is beautifully portrayed in all its sloshy, sentimental glory. Fielding has always played with popular culture. Now, ironically, this book, fresh off the shelves, is already out of date. Sorry, Bridget, but Brangelina, that universal icon of happily ever after, are no longer. Brad and Angie may be over, but Bridget Jones continues to flourish. In her opening letter to her son, she writes, The thing is, just as there's a big gap between how people think they are supposed to be and how they actually are, there's also a gap between how people expect their lives to turn out and how they actually do. Expectations are applicable to not only life but literature. Before reading this book, my expectations were to feel just a little lighter about life. Bridget Jones's baby delivers just that. Right, Peter Soule. Like me, you rate Helen Ziller's autobiography as one of the most fascinating political stories of our time. Helen Ziller's autobiography, Not Without a Fight, published by Penguin Random House, has been described as one of the most fascinating political stories of our time. This is an understatement, and as in this more than 500-page volume, we read about what really happens behind the headlines in politics the intrigue, the conflicts, and the shifting allegiances. Zilla's story begins when she was born in 1951 in Hilbrau, the daughter of refugees who escaped Nazi Germany. After graduating from the University of the Witwatersrand, she rose to prominence as a political journalist, working for Alistair Sparks, editor of the leading liberal newspaper, 
the Rand Daily Mail, where she exposed the murder of Steve Beaker. During the early 2000s, she was heavily involved in the establishment of branches of the Democratic Alliance in the hostile territory of Langer, Crossroads, and Kailicha, deeply aggressive territory claimed by the ANC as its turf. A previous ANC supporter told Zilla, the ANC, quote, heard about this white woman infiltrating our area, recruiting members for the enemy. Kailicha was to be kept a no-go zone for the DA, unquote. What follows is a terrifying tale of intimidation of DA members, arson, looting, and at the very least, police indifference. Zilla literally took her life into her own hands, driving about the townships at night, being chased and even shot at. This was all a lead-up to the 2006 local government election, when the DA emerged as the largest party with 42% of the vote and the ANC at 38. The DA held 91 seats and required 106 to form a majority in the council. There were eight other parties represented, including the independent Democrats, with 22 seats, who, surprisingly, threw their lot in with the ANC. Negotiations proceeded with the other smaller parties, comprising groups ranging from Christian fundamentalists to Muslim fundamentalists, breakaways from the ANC and the old Conservative Party to a group with no explicit political philosophy. The single PAC councillor was persuaded to abstain, and the game was on. If the coalition with the other six small parties held, their candidates would be elected. Dirk Smith of the Freedom Front Plus was elected by 105 votes to 104 with one abstention. The atmosphere was electric, and the ANC asked for an adjournment, clearly to put pressure and offer inducements to members of the smaller parties to vote for the ANC mayoral candidate. This is what political patronage is all about. To the extent that Zilla writes, President Thabo Mbeki was apparently calling people persuading them to change sides. After almost an hour, council resumed and Zilla was elected mayor by 106 votes to 103, with one abstention. To this day, she does not know which one councillor from the ANC switched sides and voted for her, and she began her quest to realign politics and entrench accountability. In 2007, Tony Leon stepped down as national leader of the DA. After much intrigue in the party, Helen was elected at the Congress held in Midrand, securing 72% of the votes. She quotes the old adage that in politics, friends come and go, but enemies accumulate. Zilla went on to lead the DA until 2015, by which time she had become Premier of Western Cape for her second term. During this time, she was involved with many differences of opinion with people such as Athel Trollope, Tony Leon, Lindiwe Mazabuku and James Self, who she came to rely on, describing his personality as the party's essential denominator and his role as chairman of the federal executive as providing the stability and institutional memory that proved pivotal. She clearly has great regard for Musi Maimani, noting has never, even in the face of the most virulent race-baiting, wavered in his defense of non-racialism. Zilla is married to Johann Marie, and they have two sons. This book is frank, honest, and unflinching, as Zilla describes in considerable detail many of the intrigues and internal conflicts she experienced. It is heartily recommended, especially for those concerned with our politics. Well, Cindy Moretz, Humor in an Addict's Memoir, 
I picked up this memoir as a filler to give my brain a breather between heavier reads, and it turned out to be one of the most relatable and at the same time laugh-out-loud funny stories I've read. Sam Cowan is well-known, particularly in Johannesburg, as a radio and television personality. I distinctly remember the beginning of her career when I would listen to her and Jeremy on their high-felt stereo breakfast show, The Rude Awakening. In rush hour traffic, you could tell who was tuned in. We were in hysterics. Little did I know she was drinking herself into a stupor every day, although she insists it was never before or at work. The problem was she finished work at 11 a.m. and had the rest of the day to fill. There were long liquid lunches and more glasses of wine while preparing and then during dinner. Eventually, after one particularly bad bender at her parents' home, no less, after which she drove home American-style on the right-hand side of the road with no memory of doing so, she conceded to her husband, Martin, that she needed help. She needed it immediately, and so off she went to an AA meeting with a recovered friend, dried vomit in her hair and smelling pretty bad. It was the start of what is now a 14-year run of sobriety. However, the story doesn't end there. She replaced compulsive drinking with eating and got really fat. She says so herself and likes to use the word fat. Nobody at the time told her how fat she was except Roy, a boom operator at ETV, where she presented a parenting show, Great Expectations. She recalls the encounter. Sam, do you go to gym? He asked once. Yes, I go four times a week, I said with casual pride. You should go more often, he announced to the world at large. I was shocked. Why'd you say that, I demanded. Because you're not pregnant anymore, but you still look pregnant, he said, waving his boo mic like a giant fluffy caterpillar on a stick. She also recalls his stint with Weight Watchers, which she joined because she says she's gangster like that. She says of the way in that there was no deliberate attempt at humiliation. She writes... No one shouted out, ha, you're up, you great big pork pie. But as one person stepped on the scale and either fist pumped the air or withered like a dry leaf in a flame, we all knew and the news would make it its way down the line. Shame, she's put on 200 grams. Oh, no, man, and she was doing so well. Yeah, she says she doesn't know what happened. We would all nod sadly. There was nothing worse than not knowing what happened. Ten years of compulsive eating and attempts at dieting left her frustrated. Then, after a chat with a, cha a trainer at the gym who suggested she worked towards something specific, she took on the challenge of swimming the Midmar Mile. This was Sam's foray into long-distance swimming, which is the water referred to in the title of the book, although I'm quite sure she's replaced wine with water as a beverage too. See how clever she is with that title? Swimming became her saviour. It provided for her peace, satisfaction, and is, she says, a great leveller. She regales the reader with her various swims, one of which resulted in her lying passed out on the grass, this time not as a result of alcohol abuse. Sam's story is one of grappling with and learning to manage addiction. She's divided the book into three parts, over-drinking, over-eating, and crazy swimming. She could have called it Drink, Eat, Swim, like Eat, Pray, Love, but it's really all about the one overriding thing. And addiction is a fascinating topic. I loved her honest and funny account of her experience, and I want to thank her for the belly laughs that went along with an otherwise serious and sad topic. Next, uh, Gory Chats with Wilbur Smith.
Wilbur Smith, <laughs> how often have you and I talked over the years? Not quite since 1964 when your first novel, When the Lion Feeds, was published, but we've done interviews, haven't we, and literary lunches. In fact, for the first literary lunch we did at the Mount Nelson, I'd asked Frederick Forsyth to introduce you. Yes, that's you know, that. <laughs> he was. He was <laughs> yes, I remember. He, uh, yeah, that that was uh, that was when it all started. Yeah, that was when, and he was furious at the time, very tense. And then you charmed him, as you've charmed millions and millions and millions of us. <laughs> well, that's very sweet of you to say so. But I, I doubt it. <laughs> I see. Uh, with your books, you've done some forty since nineteen sixty-four. Well. Actually, Wilbur, I think your 40th is the one we're going to chat about. It's called Pharaoh. Yes, that's it. The sixth in your Egyptian series. Yes. And, Wilbur, can you kindly read your dedication? Uh, I certainly will. Let me see now. I dedicate this book to my wife, Mohanise. From the very first day I met you, you have been the lodestone of my life. You make every day brighter and every hour more precious. I am yours forever, and I shall love you forever, Wilbur. That's, as always, made me slightly tearful. Wilbur, <laughs> <laughs> tell us a bit about your caviar story. <laughs> well, that was the, the first time I met her, and I was walking down the street in, the, in London, and I looked across to the other side of the road, and I saw a young girl walking down the street, and I suddenly thought, oh, why should I be going north when south looks like a good direction? <laughs> so I followed her into W.H. Smith, which is the, uh, the bookstore, one of the bookstores in London. And uh, she went and got some other chap's book off the shelf and started reading it. So I sidled across and I said, oh, you're looking for a book to read? So she said, well, I'm learning English. And they told me that he's a good book to read, to learn English on. And I said, oh, there are much better books than that. Come with me to the S section. So we had a chat there. And um, I took my latest book off the shelf and I showed it to her. And she said, oh, my goodness, that's you on the back, on the photographs. So I said, yes, that is me. I didn't realize at the time that in Russia, where she had spent her life, the poorest people in the political structure are the writers, because they all paid by the government, and they paid nothing. So she felt very sorry for me. So I, I said, that, well, how have you, have you had lunch yet? And she said, no, I haven't had lunch yet. So I said, well, come with me, and I'll take you to lunch. So we went to, to lunch, and we went to the... Uh, Caviar Caspier, and um, I was thought I was pushing her. So again, in Russia, the cheapest food on the market is caviar. <laughs> <laughs> so she ordered a tin of a hundred grams of caviar, and then she ate that with with about three mouthfuls. And then she said, "Can I have some more?" So I said, "Yes, sure." So um, she ended up by eating four cans of caviar. Was because uh, she hadn't eaten for several days, put it that way. And, um, and then the bull came, and she took it out of my hands. <laughs> she said, wow, 
This mother, you are rogues. You people are rogues. I know what caviar costs, and she was thinking about in Moscow. And she said that this is this is iniquitous. So <laughs> we had a long, and they all burst out in Russian and Russian flying all over the place. And uh, and anyway, we dined together and lunched together forever after from that day. <laughs> and I'm sure that forever after, she's left all bills in your hands. <laughs> no, she runs the counts now, and she. <laughs> is very strict and reads very carefully the menu and and the uh, bill, and so she looks after me very well. And, uh, and where where else do you live? Where do you mainly live? Well, uh, we main the house now is in London, in Knightsbridge. And, is that uh, the but whole... we keep this old house here for um, our holidays in in South Africa. Is that the house that Nina Campbell decorated that was in Nina Campbell's book? Yes, it was. Oh, so it's still got the same one? Uh, yes, there's still one, but it has, it's, we've put in a lift now and a basement, and uh, it's, we've sort of spent quite a lot of money on it in developing it into a very, very nice house. So we have two nice houses to live, one in London and one in South Africa, one in Cape Town. And so we can follow the sun and and avoid the winters oh, to a large extent. That's very clever. And uh, Wilbur, quickly, we're running out of time. <laughs> quickly tell us about Pharaoh without giving away too much, obviously. Well, Pharaoh is a, a, a carry-on of the uh, books. The main character in it is Taita, and um, he is a he's a very special person. And he and I have a very special relationship. And so I love writing his books. I love following his adventures in ancient Egypt. And um, I doubt that this will be the last Taita book. (laughs) All 374 pages of it. We were talking to Wilbur Smith about his life, about his wife, Mokaniso, and about his new book. It's called Pharaoh. Well, that's it then. Thank you for being with us. From me, Andrew Marshbanks, It's happy reading. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable, and we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them.